Saints, it's good to be in Massachusetts again. Amen. The Lord's mercy, I could be here with you all. Uh, this weekend, we want to fellowship about something very important, and that's the need for a new revival. The need for a new revival. When we talk about a revival, we're not talking about the revivals in Christianity. We're talking about a revival that will change this age, from the age of grace to the age of the kingdom. We're talking about a revival that will bring the Lord back a second time. So this is what we want. We want this kind of revival. And if we're going to have a revival like this, we need three items. Number one, we need to reach the highest peak of the divine revelation. Number two, we need to live the life of a God-man. Number three, corporately, we need to shepherd people according to God. Don't you need shepherding? I need shepherding this weekend. May the Lord shepherd all of us. Anyway, uh, we need these three items. And uh, to start off with, we want to talk about reaching the highest peak of the divine revelation. Now you can see from the title here, this message is actually on the highest peak of the divine revelation. We'll see as we go through, through this. This is on the law, the engagement covenant between God and his people. Can you imagine a definition of the law like this? To me, this is absolutely astounding, absolutely remarkable, absolutely stupendous, absolutely, forgive me for using this word, awesome. But you know awesome is a scriptural word. If you look it up, type it in, it's there in the Bible. Okay, uh, this is just an amazing revelation. hope we can see this tonight. I told the saints in the summer training that my burden in this message was that we would fall in love with the Lord all over again. It's that our love for the Lord would be refreshed and new and living and vital. And uh, we, need, we need a fresh love for the, for the Lord. You know, in Matthew 20 for 12, it says this. It says, because lawlessness will be multiplied, the love of the many will grow cold. Will grow cold. So it's possible in this age, lawlessness is multiplied. Sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is multiplied. And it's possible for our love to grow cold. It just doesn't become cold like that. It grows cold. If you look in the, in the recovery version, the uh, cross-reference for this is Revelation 2.4, where it says they've left their first love. They've left their first love, which means that uh, to leave our first love means that we stop giving the Lord the first place in our lives. We stop making Him everything in our lives. We don't want our love for the Lord to grow cold. We want our love for the Lord to become more intense day by day, shining brighter and brighter day by day until His coming. Now, saints, if we're going to enjoy the Lord, we have to love the Lord. The way to enjoy the Lord is to love the Lord. And uh, I was just thinking before, uh, before this message, you know, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, it, the, the, uh, you could say the overall theme of this book is that the enjoyment of the Lord solves all the problems in the church through the work of the cross. You want your problem, if you have any problem here tonight, you need to enjoy the Lord. Saints, isn't this our, our case? When we're enjoying the Lord, all our problems are solved. And the cross is operating to, uh, to cross out everything in us that doesn't match Christ, any germs that, uh, that, are, that are negative in our being are crossed out we are loving the Lord, and by loving the Lord, we enjoy the Lord. So 1 Corinthians, Corinthians is on a book of enjoying the Lord, the enjoyment of the Lord, solving every problem in the church through the work of the cross. If you're discouraged with your church life, just read 1 Corinthians and you'll be encouraged. Because they had a lot of problems in 1 Corinthians, but Paul talked to them 
about enjoying the Lord. And enjoying the Lord even in 20 aspects, as we know, culminating in the life-giving spirit. Well, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, uh, Paul says this. He says, God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we have a concept about what it means when we say God is faithful. We might get a good job. We say God is faithful. Uh, we got in a, we, Our car got totaled, and we get a new car, and we get a BMW, and we say God is faithful. Or we get a, uh, we have a great spouse, we say God is faithful. But, but that, that's not what it means, God is faithful here. Listen to what this means. God is faithful means God is faithful to take away all of our idols. I-D-O-L-S. He's faithful to take away any substitutes for the enjoyment of Christ. So if you look at Jeremiah 2.13, uh, Jer- Jeremiah says this, the Lord through Jeremiah says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Well, these broken cisterns are idols, are idols that the children of Israel tried to create as a substitute for Christ as the fountain of living waters. He is our pure enjoyment. And so he will take away our idols. He's faithful. Sometimes our possessions can become idols. Our, our possessions, our health, our safety, our, uh, our lots of things in our lives can become idols. He's faithful to take those away. Right? Our education can be an idol. Uh, I used to, believe it or not, I used to play basketball. That was many pounds ago. Uh, but uh, when I played basketball, that was my idol. It was an idol to me. It wasn't just recreation is fine. There's no problem with recreation. But when, when that becomes an idol to you, then that's, that's, that's really bad. It becomes a substitute for the enjoyment of Christ. And the Lord doesn't want that, so he's faithful to take away all of our idols. All of our idols. Now, in, uh, in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, uh, Paul says this. He says, Things which eye has not heard, things which, have, which ear has not seen, which, I'm, I'm sorry, ear has, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, things which have not come up in man's heart, things which God has prepared for those who think about him. For those who what? For those who love him, right? For those who love him. It says, but God has revealed these things to us through the Spirit. So the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So when you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, uh, it says the Spirit searches all things. If you look at the note, that word for searches implies active research. Active research. That means when you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, with an exercised spirit and a turned heart, the Spirit does active research into Christ as the depths of God and reveals them to us in our spirit for our participation and enjoyment. So how about we say, Lord Jesus, I love you three times right now. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I love you. Now, it's hard to say, Lord Jesus, I love you with a frown on your face. It's almost impossible, right? When you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, you feel the sweetness of his presence within. Sweetness of his presence. Now, if you come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, it says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. The word accursed there means set apart to woe, W-O-E. Set apart to woe. That means if you don't love the Lord, woe is you. Woe is you. But if you love the Lord, things which eye has not seen, things which ear has not heard, things which have not come up in, in, up in man's heart, things which God has prepared for those who love him. 
I like this, but God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even it searches Christ as the deep things of God. I'm sorry, He searches Christ as the deep things of God. The Spirit, He searches Christ as the deep things of God. Okay, now, um, we come to the title here, The Law of the Engagement Covenant Between God and His People. Now, what is the law? The law is the testimony of God revealing Himself to His people. That's what the law is. It's the testimony of God revealing Himself to His people. The law tells us who God is. The law is the explanation of God. The law is the description of God. The law is the definition of God. The law is the expression of God. We could say the law is the portrait of God. The law is the portrait of God. God is love. God is light. God is holiness. And God is righteousness. So the law shows us this. The law is the portrait of God. And Christ is a type of... I'm sorry, the law is a type of Christ... Because Christ is the living portrait of God. Christ is the living portrait of God. So Christ is the reality of the law. He's the reality of the law. So when it comes to the law, we don't want to be letter keepers of the law. We want to be loving seekers of God. We want to be loving seekers of Christ who is the living portrait of the law. So let's not be letters, letter keepers Let's be loving seekers. Let's give ourselves to be loving seekers of Christ as the living portrait of the law. Then if we, if we love the Lord as the living portrait of the law, we become the corporate living portrait of the law. We become uh, the definition, explanation, and expression of, the, of, the, of God, of God as the living portrait of God, as the corporate living portrait of God. So, when we come to the law as the, uh, when we come to Christ as the living portrait of God, as the reality of the law, then the law becomes the living word of God to us to infuse his substance into his loving seekers. So this is how we want to come to the law. This is how, actually the law is God's word. The law is God's word. It's the living word of God to infuse his substance into his loving seekers. And we'll talk about this a little later. We have this as a banner in the training. But always remember this. The highest profession on earth is to spend time being infused with God so that you can glow with God and shine forth God. That's the highest profession on earth. While Moses was receiving the law, he was being infused with God. So the highest profession on earth, saints, let's spend time with God every day. The highest profession on earth is, is to spend time, what? Being infused with God so that you can glow, G-L-O-W, glow with God and shine forth God. Have you ever seen a brother or sister glowing with God? That is just a testimony uh, that this person is a loving seeker, of God. I still remember in my first prayer meeting, my first meeting was a prayer meeting, and uh, I was kind of scared in that meeting. I never heard people pray like that. I never heard so many amens in my life, you know. And uh, after the prayer was over, they were saying, Lord, scatter us. Lord, scatter us. And inside I was saying, Lord, why do they want to be scattered? Why do they want to be scattered? Well, they were praying over Acts 8 where it says they were scattered everywhere to preach the word. They were actually praying over the word of God, which I didn't know that much, you know. But I still remember after the prayer, I was afraid to look up. So I looked up very slowly. And across from me, there was his brother, and he was just glowing. He glowed God into me. I could never forget this brother as long as I live. He's with the Lord now. But he glowed God into me. He was infused with God. He was infused with God's loving substance. And he was glowing with God. 
So he didn't even have to say anything, but he glowed God into me. You know, a brother had a uh, had a frameable quote in his office. It says, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. I like that, use words if necessary. We need to use words to preach the gospel. But our being preaches the gospel. When we're glowing with God, we are preaching the gospel. We become a living gospel, a living gospel. Okay, now, um, there are two sides to the law. There's the night side of the law, and there's the day side of the law. The night side of the law is that the law exposes exposes fallen man, that fallen man is sinful. So the law, when you look at God's portrait, it exposes that you're sinful, right? That you're sinful. When you look at God's portrait, it subdues fallen man under God's judgment. That's the second thing. It exposes fallen man, then it subdues fallen man under God's judgment. And the third thing it does, according to Galatians 3, 23 and 24, is it's, it's a, it, it keeps God's chosen people in custody, and it's a custodian to escort God's chosen people to Christ, who's the reality of the law. So this is the night side of the law, the night side of the law. Now, what is the day side of the law? This is the, this is the side we want to be on, the day side of the law. The day side of the law, which which hardly anybody sees. I mean, you can go to you can go to seminaries, you can go to, uh, uh, you know, you can go and you couldn't find a book on the day side of the law, with a title like this: "The Law, the Engagement Covenant Between God and His People." Now, the day side of the law is that the law ministers the living God to His seekers. Ministers the living God to His seekers. The law dispenses God himself as life and light to those who love the law. If you love the law, the law will minister life and light to you. Will minister life and minister dispense God himself as life and light to you because you love the law as the living word of God, as the living word of God. Now, uh, talking about the night side of the law and the day side of the law, the mountain where the law was given has two names, which which shows the night side of the law and the day side of the law. Firstly, the mountain where the law was given was called Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. And this is the mountain of God. This is on the day side. It's the place for God's seekers to meet with one another, to meet with God, to serve God, to receive God's revelation and vision, and to be infused with God's substance. This is Mount Horeb. Then the other side of the law was Mount Sinai. Same mountain, but Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where the sinfulness of God's people was exposed, and the boundary of God's holiness was revealed. Was revealed. But saints, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, this says we are sons of light, and we are sons of the day. We are sons of light, and we are sons of the day, so we should be on the day side of the law. Eventually in the New Jerusalem, if you read Revelation 21:25, Revelation 22:5, it says night will be no more. Night will be no more. So we need to be on the day side of the law. We are sons of of the day. Okay, now let's come to Roman number one. Roman number one says the subject of the entire Bible. Now just think about this. We are talking about the subject of the entire Bible tonight. The subject of the entire Bible. The content of God's economy. And the secret of the entire universe. How about having a book entitled The Secret of the Entire Universe? Maybe we should have an article, an affirmation and critique entitled that, The Secret of the Entire Universe. Or the divine romance between God and His chosen and redeemed people. I would just like to ask you tonight, how is your romance with the Lord? Are you romantic with Him? Do you tell Him you love Him every day? 
How much do you tell him you love him? If your love for him is fresh and new, you will be full of joy. You will be full of joy. If your love for him is not fresh and new, you... Well, anyway, you know the opposite, right? You know the opposite. Okay, I won't, I won't, I won't draw this on the board. But, you know, you have this, this face uh, that you see in a T-shirt. It's a happy face, right? Like this. That's how we are when we're loving the Lord. We're like this. But if you don't love the Lord, we're like this. We're like, we're just the opposite, right? But if you're loving the Lord, you're enjoying the Lord. And you're full of the joy of the Lord. Now, A says, the entire Bible is a divine romance. A record of how God courts his chosen people and eventually marries them. Now, I would like to read a few of these verses to us just so that we get an idea of how the entire Bible is a divine romance. Firstly, in Genesis 2, 21 through 24, we have the story of Adam and Eve. Romans 5, 14 tells us that Adam is a type of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 through 32 tells us that Eve is a type of the church. So you have Christ and the church here. Now, if we go back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, 21 through 24, we see that Jehovah caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He opened up his side. He took a rib out of his side, and he built that rib into a woman, and he brought her to the man. He brought her to the man. And uh, it says, And the man said, This time this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because out of man this one was taken. The Hebrew word for woman here is isha. Hebrew word for man here is ish. So isha is the issue of ish. So the church is the issue of Christ. Church is the issue of Christ. Just like Adam's side was opened up, Christ's side was opened up on the cross. Out of of Adam's side came a rib, uh, and the rib was built into a woman. Out of Christ's side came two substances, blood and water. Blood was for our judicial redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Water signifies the flowing eternal life of God, which is for our organic salvation and the overcoming of sins. Uh, the blood deals with the guilt of sin. The flowing water deals with the power of sin, overcomes the power of sin. So uh, that flowing water matches the rib out of Adam's side. And by that flowing life of God, that we are built into a woman, that we are built into the bride of Christ, and eventually we will be brought to Christ as his bride. This age will be changed, and we will be brought to Christ as his bride. We are being prepared to be the bride of Christ. In New England, after this conference, we will be more the bride of Christ than we were when we started the conference. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Now, Song of Songs 1, 2 through 4 uh, shows us four items. It shows us that we should have a personal, affectionate, private, and spiritual relationship with the Lord. Personal, affectionate, private, and spiritual. Personal means is when the Lord says, draw me. Not when the Lord says, the seeker says, draw me. She doesn't say, draw them. She says, draw me. That's personal. Draw me. Now, when you pray, draw me, the me turns into a we. Draw me, we will run after you. So, uh, every day we need to pray, Lord, draw me today, Lord. So many things to distract us. We need to be drawn by the Lord every day. Like He's like an immense magnet, right? Drawing his seekers to himself. So we need to be drawn by him. That's personal. Draw me. What is affectionate? Affectionate is where the seeker says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's affectionate. When you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, you have the most intimate and personal contact with him. That is the kisses of his mouth. 
This is why we need to say, Lord Jesus, I love you throughout the day. Begin your day with saying, Lord Jesus, I love you. When the alarm goes off, don't say, oh, no. Say, oh, Lord Jesus, I love you. I was saying that to myself first. And sometimes I say, oh, no. Then I have to catch myself. Ed, don't say, oh, no. Say, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, I love you. Okay, so kiss me is affectionate. Kiss me is also personal because you can only kiss one person at a time. You can't kiss two people at a time. Your lips would have to be, you know, have to be very big, so you can't do that, right? Now, it says the king has brought me into his chambers, into his chambers. That's private. That's our spirit. Our spirit is the chambers of the king. That is private. That is also spiritual because our spirit is the king's chamber. So it's personal, affectionate, private, and spiritual. Personal, affectionate, private, and spiritual. Now in Isaiah 62, uh, 5 through 7, it says, With the joy of the bridegroom over the bride, your God will rejoice over you. Your God will rejoice over you. In Jeremiah 3.14, God says this, He says, Return, O apostate children, declares Jehovah, for I am a husband to you. I am a husband to you. This is in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31.3, He says, Indeed, I have loved you with an eternal love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. So God loves us with an eternal love, and He draws us with loving kindness. Now we might, you know, I'm, I'm, this is later on in the outline, but I'll share this now. We might ask, why does God love us? Why does God love me? You know, in First Thessalonians, it talks about the Thessalonians, and Paul says they are beloved of God. Beloved of God. Well, why does God, you don't have to answer, I'll answer for you. Why does God love us? Why does God love us? We're not, if you look in the mirror, you don't look that very, lo- you don't look very lovable. But God loves you. He loves you with an eternal love. With an eternal love. Well, His love for us is without reason. It's without reason. There's no reason that He loves us. He just loves us. He just, lo- it's just like Edison. You're, you're married. You're, what's your wife's name again? Christine. When you met, I don't know what your story is with Christine. But when you met her, you loved her, and there was no, you didn't love her because she was a good cook, or you say, oh, she vacuums the carpet well, you know what I mean? Uh, she, she does this, you didn't investigate things about her, and, right? You just loved her, and it was without reason. And it's the same way the Lord loves us without reason. He just loves us with an eternal love. Now, Hosea 2, 19-20 says, I will betroth you to myself forever. Indeed, I will betroth you to myself in righteousness and justice and in loving kindness and compassions. Indeed, I will betroth you to myself in faithfulness, and you will know Jehovah. Now, in the New Testament, Matthew 9, 15 says, And Jesus said to them, you know, the, uh, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were saying, why don't your disciples fast? And he said, The sons of the bride chamber cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But days will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So we need to fast today. But in another sense, we shouldn't be mournful. right? We shouldn't be mournful because we have Christ with us, and we're living in his presence, and we should be joyful. We have him as the spirit in our spirit. We should be full of joy that the bridegroom lives in our spirit. John 3.29 says, He who has the bride is bridegroom. This is John the Baptist. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices with joy because of the bridegroom's voice. This joy of mine, therefore, is made full. Is made full. When you hear the bridegroom's voice, you rejoice with joy. You rejoice with joy. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, this is Paul speaking, 
And actually the Lord speaking through Paul. He says, I am jealous over you with the jealousy of God. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is the New Testament ministry. The New Testament ministry betroths us to one husband to present us as a pure virgin to Christ. How can we tell we're under the New Testament ministry? It's because this ministry stirs us up to say, Lord Jesus, I love you. When you read a life study, something rises up in your being. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. When you read a footnote, something rises up in your being. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. When you're under this ministry, when you're in a prophesying meeting, you're in a vital group meeting, something rises up within you. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Because we are under the New Testament ministry. That ministry betroths us to Christ as our one husband. Then we've got Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. This talks about Christ nourishing the church. Christ cherishing the church. You know, he cherishes us and he nourishes us. And in this conference, uh, my prayer is that he would cherish all of us and nourish all of us. And to cherish us is to make us feel happy, to make us feel comfortable, to make us feel pleasant. Now, how does he do that? You know, you don't cherish, you can't cherish someone by saying, cheer up, brother. That doesn't work, right? You cherish someone with the presence of God. His presence is the cherishing factor. So when, you, when, when, when you're filled with his presence, you're, uh, you're uh, made to feel pleasant. You're made to feel comfortable, you see? And when you feel pleasant and you feel comfortable, that opens you up to be nourished by him, to be nourished by him. You know, I had four boys. They're all grown now. Uh, but when one of my boys was little, uh, I would try to feed him those Gerber, you know, those Gerber, uh, little bottles of Gerber food. And one bottle of Gerber food was green. I don't know what was in it. Maybe it was green beans or something. But he did not like that. He did not like that. And so I would try to feed it to him, and he would just close mouth, and the, the green stuff would get all over his mouth. You know, he just... And so I would have to cherish him. Now, how can you cherish a little baby boy? What are you going to do to make him feel pleasant, feel comfortable? Why well, pretend like the spoon was an airplane? So I went, and he, he was looking at the spoon, and he, he, and he, he, he got cherished, he got nourished, right? Sometimes I feel like that's what happens in the meetings. Sometimes, you know, you, don't, you shouldn't look around too much in the meetings. Look for smiling faces. But sometimes you can see some. Sometimes we get here and it's, it's a miracle that we got our bones to the end of the chair. You know what I mean? And that's wonderful. But sometimes you can see some, some people come in. They're just so wiped out, you know. And then they get cherished, you know. And the, the Lord goes, and, and they're just so nourished by the Lord. Not just cherished by the Lord but nourished by him. Okay, in Revelation 19, 7 through 9, you have the millennial kingdom. It says, let us rejoice and exult, and let us give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And it was given her that she should be clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said to me, write, Blessed are they, this should be us, blessed are we who are called to the marriage dinner of the Lamb. Okay, then finally in Revelation 21.2, there's an eternity. Uh, John says this, he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So on the one hand, the wife prepares herself. She makes herself ready. On the other hand, she's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in Revelation 21, 9, and 10, 
The New Jerusalem is spoken of as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So this shows the New Jerusalem is a corporate person. The New Jerusalem is not a literal city. The New Jerusalem is a person. The New Jerusalem is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And we are becoming the New Jerusalem. We are building the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 22:17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. The Spirit is the husband. The bride is the wife. The Spirit is the processed and consummated trend God. The bride is the processed and consummated tripartite church. So you have two processes, two consummations, and one marriage. You have a process of incarnation, human living, crucifixion, resurrection. Then you have a consummation. That consummation, that completion, is God becomes the life-giving spirit. Then with us, you have a process. We have regeneration. Right? We have judicial redemption. Then we have organic salvation. The main items of organic salvation are regeneration, transformation, and glorification. Then we have a consummation, and we become the bride of Christ. So there's two processes, two consummations, one marriage. The spirit and the bride say they become one corporate person. Now, B says God is a courting God. And the entire Bible is God's courting word. Because he has courted us, we are in the church life today. If we, isn't that true? Because he's courted us, we're in this meeting tonight. Because he's courted us, we're in the church life today. If we would keep God's courting word, we need a responsible, affectionate love for him. You know, saints, I never realized until I got into this, uh, this is a, maybe a little point, but uh, when the Lord recovered Peter's love for him, he was courting him. He was courting him. Peter denied the Lord three times, and three times the Lord said, Simon Peter, he said, Simon Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Uh, Simon, son of John, Simon denied the Lord three times, so the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, okay, if you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, shepherd my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. This was his courting word to Peter to bring Peter back to an affectionate love for him. Peter never forgot this. If you go to 1 Peter 5, you can see that Peter talked about shepherding the sheep, right? Shepherding the flock of God. So this was the Lord's courting word of recovery to Peter. Now in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, this says the love of Christ constrains us that we would no longer live to ourselves, but to him who died for us and has been raised. So we need to pray every day, brothers and sisters, Lord, constrain me with your love. Constrain me with your love. That means to restrict me with your love. To forcibly limit me, limit me with your love. That word constrain means forcibly limit. It means hold to one end. Uh, Anyway, we need to be constrained with his love. We need to be restricted with his love. We need to be held to one end by his love. And we need to be constrained with his love so that we wouldn't live to ourselves any longer, but we would live to him as the one who died for us and has been raised. We live to him. To live to the Lord is more intimate than living for the Lord. To live to the Lord means we take His aim, His goal, His purpose, and His desire as our aim, our goal, our purpose, and our desire. You see, uh, let's say, uh, okay, Edison's in front of me. Forgive me, Edison, for using you as an example again. But um, let's say, Edison, I wanted to do something for you. I love you. So I want to do something for you. So I live for you, but I don't live to you. So I might prepare a dish for you. But the dish is something that you don't like. You see what I mean? Like, what's your favorite food? Steak, okay. Now, 
If I live to Addison, I'll fix a mistake. And how do you like it done? Medium rare, okay. If, if, I, if I live to Addison, I will fix him a medium rare steak. But if I'm living for Addison, I might give him sea cucumber. Have you ever had sea cucumber? Do you like, do you like it? <laughs> well, if I gave Edison sea cucumber every day, he would just, oh, Ed, please give me a steak. Please give me a steak. Because I'm not living to him, you see. If I live to him, I'll take his purpose as my purpose. His aim as my aim. His goal as my goal. His desire as my desire. His wishes as my wishes. His likes as my likes. His his the things he doesn't like, then I won't I won't uh, impose those on him. You see that? This is to live to the Lord. To live to the Lord. Okay, in John fourteen twenty one. It says, If anyone loves me, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So when you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, if anyone loves me, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. When you say, Lord Jesus, I love you, the Father says to you, I love you too. And the Son says, I love you. And then the Son says, I will manifest myself to him. Now, what does it mean to manifest himself to us? It means we have presence of the one whom we love in our fellowship with him. Surely the Lord is in us. He never leaves us. But do we have his presence? Do we have his manifestation? Do we have his smile? I would say his presence is his smile. We want his smile. So not only that, John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make an abode with him. That's a mutual abode, the mutual abode of God and man. The mutual abode of God and man. Okay, we have to go quicker here because of time. Asi says, when we as God's people enter into a love relationship with God, we receive his life just as Eve received the life of Adam. It is this life that enables us to become one with God and makes him one with us. And makes him one with us. So, uh, Eve was a pure product out of Adam. And everything that was in Eve was the element of Adam. In the same way, the church is a pure product out of Christ. The church is a pure product out of Christ. Anything that is not Christ is not the church. Anything that is not Christ is not the church. So D says, We keep law not by exercising our mind and will, but by loving the Lord as our husband, and thereby partaking of his life and nature to become one with him as his enlargement and expression. Now Roman 2 says, God's intention in giving his law to his chosen people was that they become his lovers. Was that they become his lovers. Saints, love is the spirit of the commandments. Is the spirit of the commandments. This is why in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 38, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him, and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, The greatest commandment in the law is that you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the spirit of the commandments. So this is why, uh, and if you look at the two sets of five of the ten commandments, the first five is on loving Jehovah. The second five is on loving your neighbor as yourself. The first five always say this, Jehovah your God, Jehovah your God, Jehovah your God. They're given in an atmosphere of intimacy. Now A says, in bringing his people out of Egypt and giving his law to them, God was courting them, wooing them, and seeking to win their affection. 
Jeremiah 2.2, 2, 31.32, and Ezekiel 16.8 indicate that the covenant enacted at the mountain of God through the giving of the law was an engagement covenant in which God betrothed the children of Israel to himself. Now listen to these verses. Jeremiah 2.2 2 says this, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Jehovah, I remember concerning you the kindness of your youth, the love of your bridal days, when you followed after me in the wilderness and land that was not sown. Then Jeremiah 31.32 says, the covenant, the covenant there is the law. The covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by their hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was their husband, declares Jehovah. Then you have Ezekiel 16.8, which is the most crucial verse. It says, Then I passed by you and saw you. Then was your time a time of love. Oh, may this conference this weekend be a time of love. Then was your time a time of love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Indeed, I swore unto you, I entered into a covenant with you. That's the law. I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord Jehovah, and you became mine. So, when the Lord entered into that covenant with them, that covenant of the law, that's when they became His. That shows that the law is an engagement covenant between God and His people. So seeing says both Ezekiel 16.8 and Jeremiah 31.32 use the word covenant, a word that refers to the law given in Exodus 20. When God gave the law, He betrothed Israel unto Himself, and Israel became engaged to Him. This is what Jeremiah 2.2 refers to in saying the love of your bridal days. The love of your bridal days. Now, D says, God's goal in giving the law was to make His chosen people one with them as a wife is one with her husband. The law would then impart God's substance into them, un into them, usher them into God, and unite them with God in life and nature. So again, saints, we don't want to be letter keepers. We want to be loving seekers. We don't want to be letter keepers of the law. We don't want to be letter keepers of the New Testament law. We, we want to be loving seekers of Christ. And spontaneously, we will, fulfill, we will walk according to the Spirit, and we will fulfill the righteous requirement of the law spontaneously. Now, Roman numeral 3 says, In giving His law to His people, God was seeking lovers. And the giving of the law was a transaction in which God's people became engaged to Him. A says, The law was an engagement covenant between God and His people. One says, God loves His people with an eternal love. With an eternal love. Listen to 2. In the first 19 chapters of Exodus, God was courting, even dating His people, as indicated by Jeremiah 2.2. We just read this. Number three, by means of the law as an engagement paper, God officially betrothed the children of Israel to Himself in Exodus 20 at the mountain of God. Then B says, the betrothal of Israel took place at the mountain of God in Exodus 20. And the law was the official paper stating the conditions for this engagement. The Ten Commandments, especially the first five, gave the terms of the engagement between God and His people. C says, the first five commandments were given in an atmosphere of intimacy with the expression, Jehovah your God, uttered intimately again and again as God lovingly courted His people. One says, in the first commandment, the Lord told His people that they should not have any other beloved in addition to Him. 
He must be their unique beloved. In the second commandment, the Lord did not want his people to make for themselves an image, an idol of anything. And as a jealous husband, he wanted his people to serve him and him alone, telling them that if they would love him, he would show loving kindness to their descendants for thousands of generations, a time span that will lead into eternity. So he didn't want his people to make an image, an idol, anything. This is just like uh, if your spouse, if, if, uh, if, if, you, if your wife had pictures in her purse of someone she liked in junior high school, that would make you very jealous, right? You say, what are these pictures doing in her? In here, right? Well, uh, I'm just using that as, a, as maybe that's a ludicrous example, but it's, a, it's an example used in the life study. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so it's not ludicrous. It's not ludicrous. So we shouldn't have pictures or photographs of anyone. We shouldn't have any idols, right? Uh, we shouldn't make an image or an idol of anything. Okay, three says, In the third commandment, the Lord as their beloved did not want his people to use his name in an improper way, but he wanted them to honor his name and use it lovingly. In the fourth commandment, the Lord required his people to keep the Sabbath as a sign that they belonged to him alone and that they were absolutely for him. Now, I'd like to stop here and just dwell here for a second. Saints, spiritually, we need to keep the Sabbath all the time. Now, what does it mean to do this? Well, in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17, what you have here is you have the building of the tabernacle. And all of a sudden, it's, it's very incongruous because the, the Lord is talking about the building of the tabernacle. Then he comes in with an insertion on keeping the Sabbath. And what does he mean by that? He says, you shall surely keep my Sabbath, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am Jehovah who sanctifies you. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout your generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days Jehovah made heaven and earth. Listen to this. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. He rested and was refreshed. So, man was God's refreshment. Man in God's own image with a spirit so that man could fellowship with God and be God's companion and counterpart was God's refreshment. Man's first day was a day of enjoyment, was a day of enjoyment. So there's a divine principle here, there's a divine principle. God first supplies us with enjoyment and then we work together with him. We need to be one with God in his work. This requires that we enjoy him. So, saints, whenever we're serving, we're serving the junior hires, we're serving the young people, we're serving the middle-aged saints, we're, just, we're all serving somewhere, we're serving someone, we have to enjoy the Lord for their sake. We have to enjoy the Lord first. Then we serve. Always remember that. Enjoy the Lord first. Sometimes we have a tendency to get anxious. Anxious, I have to do this, I have to do that. No. Enjoy the Lord first. This is your commission from the Lord. So with God, it was a matter of working and then resting. With man, it is a matter of resting and then working. And we work together with God by being one with Him. And He becomes our strength to work and our energy to labor. So as God's people, we should bear a sign that we need God to be our strength, energy, and everything so that we may be able to work together with Him for the building up of the church as Christ's body. This honors Him and this glorifies Him. So the sign that we bear is this. We rest with God. We enjoy God. We ref we're refreshed with God. And we're filled up with God first. First. Then we work together with the very one who fills us 
in oneness with Him. This is an eternal contract with God. This is an eternal contract with Him. God's eternal contract with us is that we enjoy Him. We're refreshed with Him. We're supplied with Him. He's our energy. He's our strength. He's our everything. Okay, that's number four. Then under number four, you have A. Just as a woman wears a ring as a sign of her engagement, the keeping of the Sabbath day was to be a sign that God's people were engaged to Him. B says the Sabbath in, in, is mentioned in relation to the work of God's building of God's dwelling place, signifying that as God's people work with Him and for Him, they must learn to rest with Him by enjoying Him and being filled with Him. One says keeping the Sabbath is a sign that God's people work for God not by their own strength, but by enjoying Him and being one with Him. Two says it is also an eternal covenant assuring God that we will be one with Him by first enjoying Him and then working with Him, for Him, and in oneness with Him. Three says God first worked and then rested. Man first rests and then works. Four says the mentioning of the Sabbath in Exodus 31 indicates also that everything related to the tabernacle and its furniture leads us to God's Sabbath with its rest and refreshment in the enjoyment of what God has purposed and done. Now five says, in the fifth commandment, the Lord wanted his people to remember him as their source. He says, honor your father and mother that your days may be extended upon the land which Jehovah your God is giving you. This means he wanted to remember them to remember him as their ultimate source. Now, D is very important. Let's read D all together. So the highest function of the law as an engagement paper, an engagement covenant, is to bring us into oneness with him as a wife is brought into oneness with her husband, making them his enlarged and expanded expression, his testimony. And again, remember we talked about the law being a portrait of God, the definition of God, the explanation of God, the revelation of God, and the expression of God. And it shows that God is love, God is light, God is holiness, and God is righteousness. And Christ is the living portrait of God, so we need to be his loving seekers. He says, in order for God and his people to be one, there must be a mutual love between them. One says, the love between God and his people that is unfolded in the Bible is primarily like the affectionate love between a man and a woman. Two says, as God's people love God and spend time to fellowship with Him in His Word. Saints, spend time to fellowship with Him in His Word. God infuses them with His divine element, making them one with Him as His spouse, the same as He is in life, nature, and expression. In Roman numeral 4, since the law was given as an engagement contract and the entire Bible is God's courting word, we should not try to keep the law apart from loving the Lord and His word and becoming one with Him. A says, I like A very much. The truth of God coming into us to do everything for us and in us is the central concept in the Bible concerning the giving of the commandments. So that's why Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, those who wait on Jehovah will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and will not faint. They will walk and will not become weary. 
and the eagle's wings there are the resurrection power of Christ. It's God's power in life becoming our grace, becoming our enjoyment, our enjoyment. To wait on Jehovah is to terminate ourselves. It's to stop ourselves with our living, our doing, and our activity, and to receive God in Christ as our life, person, and replacement. Our life, person, and replacement. B says, as long as we love the Lord and His Word, and as long as we stay with Him, oh, stay with Him, to be infused with Him, He will do in us what we cannot do ourselves. Isn't that wonderful? He will do in us what we cannot do ourselves. As long as we love Him in His Word, and as long as we stay with Him to be infused with Him. One says, in order to practice the vision of the eternal economy of God, the highest peak of the divine revelation, we need to spend time to be infused with the Lord as our husband, becoming more and more like Him to be His expression. Two says, our love for the Lord should be that which is expressed in Song of Songs, where we have a beautiful and touching description of the deep, tender, and affectionate love between the beloved, the Lord, and the one he loves, his loving seeker. His loving seeker. Okay, now three says, we keep the law of God by loving him as our husband. That's how we keep the law of God, by loving him as our husband. A says, I like a part of the secret of living Christ is telling the Lord again and again that we love Him. Oh, do you want to live Christ? Tell the Lord a hundred times a day that you love Him. A hundred times a day keeps the devil away. <laughs> anyway, we should aspire. We can't do a hundred times. We should aspire to say, Lord Jesus, I love you as much as possible throughout the day. This is the secret of living Christ, is to tell the Lord that we love Him. Whenever we tell the Lord that we love Him, He supplies us with His life, and this life enables us to become one with God and makes Him one with us. B says, then what we live out will be according to the law as His description, definition, and expression. And again, I like four, because we love God... We also love His living Word, which infuses His substance into us to cause us to glow with Him. And the word glow, I looked up the word glow in the dictionary. It means to shine brightly and steadily. Shine brightly and steadily. This is how we need to be. And he says, when Moses was on the top of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, he was not striving or working to fulfill the requirements of the law, Rather, he was being infused with God by God speaking with him. And his glowing face was simply a reflection of what God is. You know, when the Lord Jesus, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you look at Luke 9.29, it says, As he prayed, the appearance of his face became different, and his garment became dazzling white. If you look at the footnote, it says his garment was flashing like lightning. Now, when you spend time with the Lord, I don't think your garment's going to flash like lightning. But uh, as you pray, your face becomes different. Your face becomes different because you're being infused with God. You're being infused with God. Okay, I'll go on here. B says, God does not want a people who strive to keep the law. He wants a glowing people to express Him for His glory. C says, as we are infused with the Lord, we will shine spontaneously to become His living portrait, His testimony. We will not work or strive, but simply glow. So not only is the Lord the living portrait of, of God, we become His living portrait, His testimony, as we are infused with the Lord. Now, D says, whenever we contact the Lord in a direct, intimate way, becoming one with Him, 
His Word supplies us with life to cause us to grow, become His expression, and spontaneously live in a way that corresponds to what He is. Finally, those who keep the law by loving God and His Word to become one with Him, have the living of a God-man, to bear the image of God, being a portrait of God, and a duplication of God. So this is the law of the engagement covenant between God and His people. As we love the Lord, as we become His loving seekers, we become His living portrait, we become the same as He is in life, nature, expression, and function, but not in the Godhead. This is the highest peak of the divine revelation. And we need to reach this highest peak by spending time every day to be infused with God. Okay, saints, let's pray with our neighbor for a minute or so, and then maybe one of the brothers will share with us about having some testimonies.